Welcome to Global Leader Radio, sponsored by the Executive MBA program at Kennesaw State University, discussing ideas that matter with people who care. Now here's your host, Director of Business Development and Instructor of Management for the Executive MBA program at Kennesaw State University, Alvin Miles. Well, happy Monday and welcome to another informative edition of Global Leader Radio. And uh, today I'm pleased to introduce two gentlemen with great leadership backgrounds and experience. The first is Mr. Keith Hicks. Hello, Keith. Hello, Alvin. Uh, Keith is the Senior Vice President of Human Resources for MedAssets. And in this role, he oversees the company's human capital strategy and implementation, including workforce planning, talent management, organizational design and development, executive and employee compensation, and talent acquisition. So he brings 25 years of industry experience and human resources leadership to his role. And before that role, he um, served as the EVP, Executive Vice President of Human Resources for Radiant Systems here in Atlanta, correct? That's correct. Okay. And, um, and prior to that, Mr. Hicks was a partner with Accenture and held several executive human resource positions with responsibility ranging from regional to what we really love to hear about is the global in scope. So, uh, again, his, um, actually his, his background in terms of academics is he uh, graduated uh, with a uh, computer science degree from the University of Tennessee, right? That is correct. Interesting. Very good. Well, um, and the second gentleman we have here today is Dick Teeters. He's a lecturer of business at the Michael J. Coles College of Business at Kennesaw State University. Good afternoon. Hello, Alvin. And uh, Dick retired from the U.S. Army in 1998. After a 30-year active duty career, and uh, thanks for your service. And uh, his Army career was about evenly divided into many careers as an armored cavalry officer, finance and accounting officer, and a recruiting officer. So his last assignment was pretty interesting. He he was uh, the chief of staff for the U.S. Army Recruiting Command. And upon retiring from the Army, he became a professor of business at KSU. And his teaching interests are pretty broad, but they tend to concentrate on entrepreneurship, managing small enterprises, and business and economic history, which really leads us to why one of the reasons why we have him here today, uh, because his primary research is vested uh, in the Center for Accountable Leaders, where he's recording and archiving video memoirs. So that's pretty interesting stuff. So yeah, Very much so. Very much so. So we'll, so we'll start with you, Keith. Please tell us a little bit about Med Assets and why you ultimately decided to join the team earlier this year. Sure. Uh, Med Assets is a $600 million company, a public company based here in Alpharetta. We've got offices all over the United States. We provide software and services for the healthcare industry. We've been in existence since, two, uh, since 1999, so a little over 12 years. And we have about 3,000 employees across the U.S. Okay, great. And so, so well, what? Why, why did I join yeah. MedAssets? Right. So, how did they get so lucky? Is the point? That's exactly right. In fact, one of your uh, guests just a few weeks ago helped me find MedAssets, Tom Darrow. Oh, fantastic! That's exactly right. So, I uh, was with Radiant Systems prior to MedAssets, and uh, uh, Radiant Systems was acquired by NCR in the summer of 2011. And around that time, I started looking for uh, next uh, opportunities and. Tom called and said, I've got one you might be interested in. And I had a number of opportunities, but Met Assets was the one that was most attractive to me. Uh, one, because of the industry it's in healthcare. I've, I do not have a background in healthcare, but okay. there's so much going on in the world of healthcare today. I felt that uh, what a great industry to be in if you're, if you're trying to transform an industry, which is what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, that is an industry ripe for transformation, no doubt. 
Uh, I was also very impressed, quite frankly, with the leadership of MetAssets and uh, all of the uh, C-suite executives that I met. I thought uh, this would be a great environment, uh, a learning environment, a growth environment for me personally. And I also thought that uh, the, the, the business itself moving from, we, we became a public company about uh, four years ago, but moving from a private company and kind of maturing into a, into a public company, it was ripe for a lot of change from a talent development standpoint. Okay. And so I thought it was a great opportunity from a, an HR perspective as well. Well, fantastic. So would you say that Med Assets is a small, medium, or large? Uh, it's a medium-sized business. Medium-sized. So, um, okay, interesting. So, of course, I'm sure that brings in its own set of challenges, working and uh, trying to attract leaders and, and make sure that you keep those leaders on board with retention, et cetera, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, one of the things, ha- having worked for, uh, I've had, Worked for three companies in my 27-year career, so I don't hop around too much. But uh, my first stint was at a very, very large company, Accenture. Mm-hmm. And it's got a global brand, global name. Everybody out there knows of Accenture. And so it's easy to attract uh, great talent to Accenture just because of the brand and the image. My next two stints uh, at Radiant and now at MetAssets are, com- are you know, medium-sized companies. The, our, our brand is significantly, you know, not out there as much. And so it's a little bit harder. A lot of people don't know who, who MetAssets is, and so you have to explain. You have to really create a value proposition that, that uh, will bring people in and make them want to join. Exactly. So you, you find that as well, right, Dick, that uh, that people really have to make the value proposition when it comes to leadership. Exactly. Plus, you also have to get out and uh, and, and push uh, your uh, your product, if you would. Yeah, very good. So, Dick, let's talk a little bit about um, the Center for Accountable Leaders, or TCAL for short. So tell us a little bit about what you do there. Um, and, and this is your baby, I would assume, correct? It is. Um, what we do is we seek out men and women who are proven leaders, uh, and they've actually retired from their primary uh, professions, if you will. They're in their encore years, their, their new careers. And we do that specifically because we don't want to, uh, to record the memoirs of people who still have a potential of compromising their integrity. Okay. And so we want to make sure that their integrity is insta- intact, their performance is intact. And uh, we basically do a freestyle uh, kind of an interview. Uh, we don't um, we don't do the normal journalist route of asking questions, probing, trying to find uh, you know, specific answers. We just allow the men and women to tell their story, starting where they want to start and where they want to end. They mentioned something along the way that we think is uh, worth revisiting. We'll go back and revisit those issues. And then what that does is it basically sets up a um, an environment that is academically uh, correct. It would be just like somebody had sat down and. Uh, uh, written their memoirs, and it, it, by maintaining its integrity, it becomes available to the whole world, um, as is, uh, for people to to take re, uh, to learn from, and hopefully to to motivate young men and women who want to become leaders in an ethical environment to do so. Ah, interesting. So this is not a moderated interview, correct? It is not. Okay. Okay. Well, so again, the the whole point of choosing not to do it that way is so that you can maintain some some research rigor. Exactly. And and what we find out is that uh, even though there's, you know, people have been trying to find out what makes a leader, what makes an entrepreneur, and they're coming up with pretty pretty static uh, uh, points of learning. In our case, we're learning all new things because we're not trying to find uh, or proof of what what we believe to be true. Okay. And and so we're finding that there are some... uh, there are some interesting traits that these men and women go through in life that don't normally come out in the other studies. Interesting. Very good. So um, what was the motivation for starting it in the first place? 
No, you kind of touched around the edges of it, but the whole the, the whole point of it. The 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 motivation actually is a, a gentleman uh, who's retired up in Knoxville. Uh, he was a he was a longtime family friend of my in-laws. Um, he was the guy that solved the engineering problem that created the hydrogen bomb. Interesting. And in his um, in his years with uh, Union Carbide, Martin Marietta, Lockheed Martin. Uh, he got frustrated with uh, what he called uh, leaders making decisions based upon pragmatic uh, reasoning. And, and basically it was opportunistic, uh, opportunistic kinds of reasoning more than prag- uh, pragmatic. And his challenge to me was to, to find a way to educate senior leaders that just because it's an opportunity doesn't mean it's something you have to pursue. Mm. Uh, and also to maintain your integrity throughout these processes that you're competing for business, et cetera. And I couldn't see myself teaching anybody anything uh, because I'm not a former CEO of a major, you know, a Fortune 500 company. So why would they listen to me? So what I did is I said, you know, it would be nice to take the men and women who have been senior leaders as well as people who have, I guess, championed the causes of young men and women who eventually become uh, chairman and CEO of major corporations. And then maybe through their stories, we could then – um, motivate uh, the younger uh, younger generations as they come through. So it's sort of a sort of a backwards motivation. But the bottom line is, you know, we often find out that as we go through life, we come across changes in our plans. Mm. And if you're really a perfectionist, and if you're really dedicated to something, and there's a brick wall in your way, you either have to get over it, or get over it. <laughs> and and uh, and and getting over it, oftentimes people think that they have failed. And what I don't want to have happen is people to encounter their first or second major f- failure, if you will, and think that's the end of their life, that that's the end of their, their ability to achieve. And so by these other stories, what they'll be able to find out is that everyone who has managed to get to the top, everybody who has helped somebody up to get to the top, have gone through these major roadblocks in their lives, and it's the ability that they had to work around those, to, to still achieve uh, despite the, the the roadblocks in their in their way, and so that's basically there's there's the the, ch- the personal challenge that uh, this gentleman gave to me. Then there's also that motivation that young men and women should not feel like they've uh, uh, that they've failed. It's just an opportunity again to succeed in a different way. You know, I, I like that uh, that whole thought around the motivation, and certainly what you're what you're seeing today. So, Keith, what are your thoughts around that whole failure paradigm? I am a firm believer in what Dick just said, and um, I can look back at my own career and see many points of failure or disappointment that you know at the time uh, doesn't feel like a good thing, obviously. But when I look back, and I see how each of those led to my you know growing, and then future success. Uh, so I use stories from my past constantly, how you've got to overcome, you, you, you know, that um, one of my colleagues, uh, one of my former companies had a great saying. He said, uh, when you walk uphill, your legs get stronger. And I, I absolutely love that. When you're trying to overcome a challenge, overcome a setback, you got to walk uphill. And it can be a very steep hill, but it can absolutely, uh, if you have the right attitude about it, lead to uh, growth and future success. So we expand by demand, right? That's exactly <laughs> right. So, Dick, um, what are some of TCAL's deliverables? Certainly, you're, you're doing these video memoirs, but um, I, I'm, I'm thinking that you probably have a few more deliverables. Well, actually, the, the, the only thing that we 
are, are focused in on is to put the uh, the deliverables online. Online. And, um, and they'll actually be in, in two formats. One is uh, for the general global population, they'll be as is, uh, but they will not be able to download or, or copy it. The, the other side is that those people who are academic researchers or students and things of that nature who are studying leaders uh, will have se- separate access to it free so that they can take pieces and parts and, and, and patch it together in a, in a story that, that supports their, their research. The, um, the thing that we're doing right now with uh, the University College of Kennesaw State is that there is a, uh, there's a component uh, of their program that they deliver that's uh, called a Certificate in Leadership for Undergraduates. And uh, this semester will be the first time that uh, teams from their classes will take on the, several of the, uh, uh, the videos that we have right now and just, just say, here they are, go through them, and, and take from them the, the key points that you think are, are worth it. And then later on in November, what they'll do is they'll actually present to it in a town hall uh, type environment what they learned from about five or six of these, uh, of these men and women that we've recorded. Yeah. And that'll be our first indication as to how young men and women look at the stuff that we've, we've assembled. And as we go forward, we'll be able to use that as, as testimonials as to how it could be used. Right now, it's just still at the vision level. Ah, well, so you're looking at leaders who have actually been there and done that. Exactly. And so, Keith, of course, you're working with uh, leaders that, are, that have some potential left. And certainly when you, and you also talked about the fact that you're working in a mid-sized business. Right. So how important is it to grow leaders in a mid-sized business? Oh, it's absolutely critical. I think, you know, um, with mid to small size businesses, oftentimes you get so caught up in the, the business of the business that it's easy to lose sight of the fact that in order to sustain the business and grow the business long term, it's not just about the current leaders running the business. It's about the future leaders okay. uh, who are going to take over for the current leaders. That thought comes naturally in a very large global organization, multibillion-dollar organization. It's just kind of part of the culture. However, in a small to mid-sized business, it, it isn't always. A lot of times it's dominated by uh, the founders of the company or the, 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 you know, the folks who are in on the, uh, from the ground floor. And uh, it, it doesn't naturally always come natural to want to develop leaders, but it's absolutely critical, as I said, uh, to grow those leaders, to sustain the business beyond the founder, or beyond those people who started it up you know, 10, 20 years ago. Um, but it's also a challenge. Mm. It's a challenge because unlike a multi-billion dollar global enterprise, small to medium-sized businesses don't have a lot of financial, have a lot of staff to throw at, you know, building some elaborate executive development, leadership development program. Mm. So you have to be a lot more creative um, and resourceful about how, you, how to go about it. Yeah, and something tells me that's why they brought in someone of your stature and magnitude and understanding of leadership. And so, so tell us a little bit about maybe a couple of initiatives you have going on there at MedAssets. Yeah, sure. Well, um, as I mentioned, my, my, the first part of my career was spent at Accenture, and we did spend hundreds of thousands, millions really, on leadership development. And uh, so I had a very, very large uh, budget to, to be able to uh, do a lot of really neat things. And when I joined, uh, when I left there and joined uh, Radiant and then subsequently uh, Met Assets, one thing, you know, first thing that smacks you is, wow, I don't have that multi-million dollar budget anymore. And I've really got to get <laughs> creative with how I do this. Yes. But I'll tell you, um, uh, you really don't have to have any money to develop leaders. And I, I did a talk on this uh, about a year ago. There are so many things that you can do to identify and develop 
your future leadership. And I just, you know, uh, let me start with the identification. Great. Um, first, you got to ask yourself, do you know who the future leadership of your business is? Do you know who those people are who are kind of down in the ranks today, but uh, 5, 10, 15 years from now are going to be sitting at the top or have the potential to be sitting at the top if you give them the right experiences and the right opportunities? And if you don't know that, you need to know that. And um, figuring that out is not too hard. You, you, you talk to the existing leaders. You, you, you um, observe people and see who's, who's kind of rising to the top. But you got to get them. You, you have to do that identification. You have to understand your high potentials. The second thing I think is uh, absolutely critical is what makes a successful leader at your company? You know, it's easy to talk about leadership and developing strong leaders. But what, what exactly are you trying to develop? What types of leadership traits and attributes and skills and, and, and competencies do you and your business need? And so one of the things that, um, uh, f- quite frankly, we're doing right now at, at Med Assets is we are developing uh, our uh, what, what we're calling our four dimensions of leadership okay. is really trying to identify exactly what does make successful leadership at Med Assets. To some extent, it's... Um, you know, what, what are our current leaders, uh, what type of skills and experiences they bring to bear, what, what's made them successful? But on the other hand, it's, that may not be enough. What's going to make us successful in the future? Mm-hmm. Because we'll be a different business 10 years from now than we are today, right? We're different today than we were 10 years ago. So understanding who your future leaders are, understanding what makes a successful leader. Um, and then third, getting really, really creative if you don't have lots of money to throw at it, getting really creative about how to provide people the right experiences, the right exposures, the right opportunities to grow in those areas. And so uh, just a couple of examples. Um, one thing that pretty much every company has in common, right, is they have a set of customers. Yes. Got, and we have a, an executive speaker series uh, in Med Assets where we bring in top leaders from our clients, CEOs of hospitals from around the country, um, and they'll come and speak to our emerging leaders, our high potentials, and uh, spend a couple of hours. And it doesn't cost a dime. You pay for their flight to come visit you. And the experiences and the learning and the insight that our potential leaders get from those CEOs uh, or other senior leaders from our clients is invaluable, absolutely invaluable. Not only does it give them insight about leadership in general, it gives them insights about our clients uh, and you know, how, to, yes. how to succeed within those um, uh, client organizations. So that's uh, very, very valuable. Another thing that is, um, if, if you think about developing a leader, um, and, if, and if, if think about your own career, right? It's mm-hmm. it's some some of what you learned is because you read it in a book, or because you attended a class, or a course, or you know you heard somebody speak, and you took away some, you know, pearl of wisdom. Part of your leadership is based on that, but a vast majority of your leadership, and I would venture to say eighty percent to ninety percent of what you are as a leader, has been developed because of the work you've been doing, the opportunities, the, the, the assignments, the projects, the responsibilities that you have. And so part of a, any leadership development program doesn't happen inside a classroom. It happens by taking a high potential leader, taking them out of their current role, and putting them in another stretch assignment, you know, make, being very deliberate 
about that and very um, you have to be intentional you yes. have to say okay yeah we know Joe is doing a great job at this particular assignment why would we want to you know create a hole but the only way we're going to get Joe to grow even more is to put Joe into a different assignment that's okay. going to create some pain but in the in the long run it, it really truly creates gain that's right so we expand by demand so when when you think about the difference between potential and performance I would think that you perhaps have seen some differences, especially with regard to the folks that you interview. Am I correct, Dick? Oh, yeah. They, um, it, it's kind of interesting. There's, there's two parts. Uh, what Keith was talking about, you know, how do you take somebody out of their comfort zone? Um, even though we haven't interviewed her, she's on the list when she retires. Uh, Eartha Burns uh, talks about getting back to zero. You know, an organization puts a lot of time, effort, and money in somebody who's new. And until they start to be able to pay back. They're just getting back to zero. And so you, you don't want to uproot them and send them someplace else until they can contribute. At the same time, you still want to make sure that you don't stall out and, uh, and get petrified uh, in something that uh, is it's, it's good work, but it doesn't challenge you to your, to your fullest. Mm. And what we've seen throughout is that oftentimes these, these brick walls that I mentioned earlier are actually these opportunities that present themselves. Uh, people... Uh, we've had one gentleman who, at uh, the ripe old age of 57, was told, "Well, uh, you're not going to be the CEO," you know. And uh, so he said, he starts his own company and becomes a, a global powerhouse. And, and so again, it's a classic case of all aspirations sort of ended one day, and uh, and he was put into a position where he had to he had to excel, and he built a team and, and went on. But each one of these people have had something uh, that caused them to take on greater responsibilities, and. And interestingly enough, there are people who are watching, whether it be an intentional or not, people are watching. I think one of the best stories that talk about uh, people watching was um, um, our good friend uh, Jim Blanchard down at Synovus. Uh, when Jim was offered the, uh, the opportunity to follow his father, who had passed away unexpectedly at uh, uh, the Columbus Bank and Trust, um, you know, I, I asked him, I said, well, what did Mr. Turner say about why you, you know, you didn't have any background for it. He said, well, Mr. Mr. Turner said, um, we've been watching you since you were in junior high. Interesting. And so, again, it's a classic case of, of all the people that could have been um, able to take that position, he had been watched. And when the opportunity presented itself, he was their only selection. And that's happened with a lot of people. The, you don't know where your exposure to senior leaders is going to come from. You don't know uh, how and when it's going to happen. Um, but I think that uh, in uh, the words of Tom Bell, who we just recently interviewed, uh, he said, never turn down an opportunity when somebody calls and says, we'd like you to do something because it's out of your comfort zone. You're going to grow, and they probably have more confidence in you than, than you do in yourself. So go with it you know, and do, and do your very best in whatever you're challenged to do. It's a great tip for leaders and future leaders and certainly our uh, learning community. Of course, Global Leader Radio here, what we do is we have great conversations around leadership uh, with certainly people who have done it and with people who are really passionate about it. And you two gentlemen exemplify that uh, quite a bit, uh, to me at least. And as I was sitting here thinking through your backgrounds, what occurred to me is that you both were – Small fish in a big pond, but now you're big fish in a small pond. Puddle. Puddle. Okay. So, <laughs> Keith, let's start with you. So, you were working with Accenture. I would dare say you were probably a small fish in a very large pond. 
It's a very big pond, I will admit. Yeah, and so now that you're working with Met Assets, so you're bringing some very strong ideas and a great background, and and uh, dare say some great creativity to it. So, what about that? What about that move? I mean, because we hear we hear people talking yeah. about leadership and and rotational assignments and saying, you know, and I I don't want to work at a small company that doesn't have the same resources that the larger one had before. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about that? I think that's a great question. In fact, I was just having this conversation with my 18-year-old son, who is a, a rising senior in high school, and uh, you know, pretty soon will be headed off to college. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was just asking, "Dad, what's the, uh, you know, c- compare and contrast a larger company or a smaller company? Which would you recommend for me when I graduate from college?" And um, uh, I tell you what, I think experiences in both are phenomenal, and I'll, I'll just give you my own experience. Um, Accenture, very, very large company, had a great program coming out of college. I joined them right out of college, and uh, great development program. And so I was there for over 20 years, and what I got to see was world-class business processes, methodologies, um, and and the like. I, I, we really had world-class uh, way to go to market uh, and business business uh, processes. When I was offered the opportunity to leave and join a smaller company in 2006, I have to tell you there was a lot of trepidation on my part because I thought, can I, you know, I've been a successful HR leader at Accenture, this global company, but it's really all I know. Can I, can I survive? Can I succeed in a smaller company? And um, I took the leap of faith thinking I, I would, and quite frankly, I took that leap because I knew that if it didn't work out, I could always go back to Accenture. Um, so. <laughs> which, which, which is also another leadership lesson, right? That's right. Yeah, you make sure you, uh, you don't always leave them smiling. That's right. Leave them smiling. Don't burn any bridges. And, uh, you know, they made it very clear that, hey, if it doesn't work out for you to come back, we'd love to have you back. But I'll tell you, the moment I landed at this uh, uh, at the smaller company back in 2006, I immediately knew I'd made the right decision. Because what I didn't know was that everything that I had been exposed to in those 20 years prior, while I took it as just um, common everyday knowledge, Hmm. it isn't common everyday knowledge. And the smaller business that I went to work for, Radiant Systems, found those ideas to be breakthrough ideas and everything I was bringing to the table. And so what it afforded me was the opportunity to truly lead. I was now in the top position. I didn't have a uh, a bunch of people around me who were the experts telling me what to do. I was the guy trying to figure it out. And so it was a stretch. I was put in, into situations that I'd never uh, had to deal with before, but I had this great grounding from uh, my 20 years prior. And so it was a it was a bet. It was a risk that was absolutely paid off in, in big ways in every way and uh, probably the best decision I ever made from a career standpoint because it just afforded me so many opportunities of growth. So the 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 point I think is as Dick was talking about you got to get outside your comfort zone and quite frankly I'd grown very comfortable mm. I'd been with the company for over twenty years and um, and I had to take the risk I, I, and I didn't I guess I didn't have to I could have not um, but I would have re- regretted it and so uh, there's a there's a quote that a colleague of mine uses a lot he talks about leadership development and he talks about the comfort zone and he says uh, and I truly believe this. All personal and organizational growth for all time only happens outside the comfort zone. All personal and organizational growth happens outside the comfort zone. And I think we can often 
it's just comfortable to be comfortable. And yes. who wants to push yourself, right? But if you want to grow and you want to succeed, you have to get outside the comfort zone. Well, there's a lot to that uh, level of comfort, too. I would imagine that, you know, you can set a schedule really well when you understand and you've been doing something for 20 years. But so before we step over to Dick and get his thoughts on this, I really want to touch on one uh, or two other questions. What is it that made you sufficiently uncomfortable enough to think that it was worthwhile to step forward? I mean, certainly you've got a, a, a bit of tolerance for ambiguity because you had no clue what would happen when you stepped over, although you were very confident who you were, right? Yeah, so I tell you what uh, kind of made me step out. I thought, uh, you know, I did think it would be good to test myself okay. in a different environment to really see if I can lead outside the walls that I had grown so comfortable in. And, um, and uh, it was a risk for my family. It was a risk for me personally, but it was that it was the opportunity, the opportunity to truly lead on a different scale. And um, the thought of being in a smaller pond uh, uh, was attractive. Hmm. It was attractive. Uh, You can um, the decision making happens a lot easier, a lot faster. And uh, for those who are have a bias towards action and want to get things done. Uh, let's face it, it's a lot easier to get things done in a smaller organization than in a larger organization that has a lot of governance and processes and, and committees and things like that. So the feedback comes a lot quicker. Feedback comes a lot quicker. <laughs> and I tell you, both ways, good and bad. <laughs> good and bad. When you fail, you fail quickly, and um, you have to recover quickly. Oh, very good. Thank you for that. Uh, so, Dick, what do you think? Uh, certainly you came from a background that uh, is not unprecedented. Certainly came from the military. Right. Spent, spent many years, did uh, some fantastic things there. And then you step into a role with uh, Kennesaw State University. So tell us a little bit about that that whole mindset, the shift, the thought of moving into a role that you really knew you could make a difference in. Well, I thought I could make a difference the first 30 years. Ah. So, uh, <laughs> but what's, what's interesting is that um, those who don't know often misunderstand organizations. And I need to, to clarify that uh, in the Army, you achieve general manager responsibilities very, very early, mm. and you're decentralized. Uh, those people who cannot, uh, who cannot lead independently, who cannot uh, to fulfill, fulfill their mission requirements, uh, train their people, take care of their people, things of that nature are, are sorted out rather quickly. Those who can be general managers very early are given more opportunities, and they build upon it. So it, it's, it's more decentralized than people would think. Okay. Uh, the, um, the movies of standing in the rain uh, for hours on end, uh, quoting Shakespeare, is, is probably not uh, uh, the model that you would get past your, your basic training. But, but still, within large organizations, uh, you still have to understand what the, what the vision, what the intent is, and you have to work t- towards that, that common goal. Mm-hmm. Um, when I retired uh, and moving into a, a teaching role, it was kind of interesting in that as a, as a professor, you, you are in, in full command and control of your small little environment, but you're still part of this large organization, and you have to move with its intent. And so adjusting visions, if you will, uh, was, was a challenge, but, but overcame that. But what's also interesting about the, uh, the opportunity at Kennesaw State was unlike other universities, because of our, our youth, if you will, as an institution, and the way that we're moving forward, uh, my my personal uh, passions were were accommodated for, which is kind of interesting. In that I'm doing things that uh, an organization wouldn't normally allow you to do, but they've said you don't want to do that. You know, do it to the best of your ability and, and enjoy it. 
And so uh, not only have I been able to, to do this record, uh, recording of uh, life experiences, but I'm also being allowed to, to take those experiences and form them into uh, business education and economic education because they are relevant. These men and women have dealt in the global environment. You can't, uh, you can't listen for hours and hours and hours to these people and not take it into the classroom. And so it, it, so it becomes a classic case where uh, you know, professors are, are, are asked to, to, to keep a foot in the, in the business world in their areas of, of expertise and bring those, uh, those experiences into the classroom as fast as possible. Uh, in addition to to integrating it into their larger uh, research, and and it's just kind of interesting that, um, as opposed to being accountable for a lot of people uh, and their families and their welfare, etc., it's it's a microcosm, and and it's it's kind of hard to adjust to. Uh, we've had, uh, uh, I, I guess there's a there's an age-old sailing about the the guys who come out of senior executive positions in places like IBM. Uh, when they want to be entrepreneurs, you have to wait for them to fail two or three times because adjusting to small is really, really hard to do. Yes. Uh, and so I think that my transition from large military organizations and even with the decentralized uh, thinking, being on my own within a larger organization is, is really a, a big challenge. But one thing I, I do use as a, um, as a sort of a reference for people is that when uh, the week before I retired, uh, if something went wrong with my computer, I would go out the back door of my office and 40 people from IT would descend upon it and <laughs> tell me it was me that messed it up, not them. Now, when uh, my computer goes haywire, I get frustrated and I walk out the back door of my basement and when I come back, the computer's still not fixed. And so, so there's, there's a difference, uh, uh, there's a difference of, of response and authority and, and things of that nature. But that's, that's, that's life. You know, you got, you got to go on to the next level. Absolutely. You know, one thing I wanted to ask you as well is, um, with regard to uh, what you're doing with the um, with the memoirs, why did you feel it was important to do video as opposed maybe to just audio or books as a way of recording these memoirs? We are in the audiovisual world. Uh, people are turned on and they they learn primarily in this, I guess, in this environment by what they see and what they hear. But it's also it's also important that. Um, we not retell somebody else's story. Okay. And these men and women have been kind enough to look right into the camera, tell their story, and I think that that connection, that human connection from one person's eyeballs to another person's eyeballs really does connect and it makes sense. And I think that if, if we're to accomplish what we want to accomplish, it's going to be one person telling their one story to one other person who gets it and, uh, and can... Can, can see the success and the future of their lives based upon that, that interaction. And that's just it. Okay. That makes sense. So what are each of your personal philosophies of leadership, and specifically to you, um, Dick, accountable leadership? Yeah. That, that's, that's a good question. You know, even though I've used accountable, it, it, it does everything from um, – it, it's not necessarily being, quote, responsible. Uh, what it says is that I, as a leader – am the one where the buck stops with me. Everything that uh, within my organization, everything that I, 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 um, I'm responsible for, all of the external communications, every, every relationship, it is me. It's not somebody else. I'm accountable for it. Now, you can, you can say, well, it's ethical leadership, and you can define ethics different ways. I said, well, that's fine. But if I were to define it between two leaders, and this is how I uh, sort of defined who I'm looking for, I know 
some very strong, accountable leaders. And I asked them, who else do you know that you would do business on a handshake? And you don't have to pad it with a lot of legal documents, but you would do business with them on a handshake and not be afraid that, that they would take advantage of you. And guess what? There are people out there. Yeah. And, and it doesn't make any difference what, what your background is, uh, where, what your ethical base is. It doesn't make any difference. There are people who are accountable for their actions, and they will deliver. And those are the men and women I want to, uh, to have on our videos. Fantastic. Keith, what are your thoughts? What are, what are, are your personal philosophies with regard to leadership? Well, I totally agree with what Dick just said about accountability and the buck stops here, and that's clearly uh, critical as a, as a leader. Um, one of my personal philosophies on leadership, and I could speak about this all day long, Alvin, I know we don't have all day, but I'll, I'll give you one. And that is um, something that I personally employ is to always do the right thing, no matter what you're faced with, whether it be a, you know, a customer issue, a growth issue, people issue strategic issue, step back, what is the right thing to do? And having that judgment and um, knowing in your gut, a lot of times we can get, uh, I, I totally believe in data and analytics and studying a problem, but at the end of the day, I believe you got to do the right thing. And um, if you are doing the right thing, you'll succeed. Well, that's interesting. We we had uh, Derek Kayango actually sitting in um, in with us uh, maybe three weeks ago, and he spent a lot of time talking to us about the female side of leadership, really. And and the female side is my words, not his. But it, he was really focusing on intuition, and the fact that it, intuition is not to be discounted with regard to leadership. And it sounds as though you're echoing I, that sentiment as well. I completely believe that. And you know, we t- we talk about having a gut feel. And we all know what that means. Mm-hmm. And, and I honestly believe there is a, a gut feel that more often than not leads us in the right direction. If you pay attention to it. If you pay attention to it and if you trust it. Yeah. If you have good morals, good judgment, your gut will lead you in the right direction. So with that in mind, Keith, uh, tell us a little bit about um, diversity in leadership. How do you ensure that Med Assets is providing opportunities for high potential women and for people of color? Yeah, I I think that, first of all, this is a very interesting conversation around diversity and leadership. And I'm a firm believer uh, that organizations, regardless of the organization, will deliver better results with uh, a diverse leadership team. And uh, to, to make my point, if you just think about the converse, think about any organization whether it be a business organization, a political organization, a religious organization, a nonprofit organization, whatever the organization, if everybody at the top thinks the same, acts the same, has the same experiences, the same point of view, what progress are you making? More of the same. More of the same. (laughs) That's exactly right. More of the same. And so I believe you have to have diversity at the top, Um, and not just men and women, or not just uh, people of color and, and, and uh, Caucasians, but people of different backgrounds, different experiences, different life uh, experiences. That's what makes up a diverse leadership team. And um, so I was having this conversation uh, several years ago with an organization I worked at before Met Assets, and it was really interesting. I was bringing to the table this dialogue on leadership and diversity and that I felt we had a very homogeneous 
leadership team when I joined. And uh, the argument I got back was, hey, we hire and promote the best people. Hmm. We're, not, we're not concerned about diversity. We're, we just hire and promote the best people. So my question was, well, how do you know you're hiring the best and promoting the best people? Well, because we know these people. And um, <laughs> I said, well, is it possible, just for a moment, is it possible that the reason our leadership team, this was, again, the company I worked at before, mm-hmm. uh, is it possible that our leadership team is all white men in their 40s because we are hiring the people we know and we're promoting the people we know. And feel comfortable with. And feel comfortable with. And I had it, this was a wonderful conversation I had with uh, one of my colleagues there, and he was completely, he, he didn't agree. He said, listen, um, I, you know, we're doing, we're, we're promoting the right people, et cetera, et cetera. I said, really? I said, um, when is the last time you took uh, one of your ma- ma- white male uh, subordinates to lunch? Oh, just yesterday. And, and the time before that? Oh. A week, week before that. And what did you guys talk about? Oh, we talked about business, et cetera. Um, I said, when was the last time you took a woman to lunch? And he scratched his head. He said, uh, I don't think I ever have. Wow. <laughs> wow. And uh, it, a light bulb went off in his head because my point to the to the group, this, this was the debate we were having at the time, was they were arguing um, we don't need to give special treatment or st- special dispensation to uh, women or people of color. And I said, I'm not talking about special dispensation or special treatment. I'm talking about the same opportunities. There you go. And uh, oftentimes we find it's the white men who are invited to go play golf or, or go out for drinks after work or just have those very informal, what I call mentoring and coaching opportunities that are not at all uh, subscribed or, 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 or set up. It just, they just happen naturally. And a lot, of time, a lot of times women, people of color, aren't because they're not just like the white leaders at the top. And so you have to have, you have to make a, uh, a concerted effort to think about that and provide them the same opportunities. Um, and when you do, you find out that they've got a ton, ton to offer and can add to the leadership team. So my, my whole point in all of that is for, for mid to small size companies, I think you have to be very intentional and deliberate about identifying, it goes back to the very first thing I talked about, identifying potential leaders of all backgrounds and making mm-hmm. sure that you're giving them the right opportunities to advance. Yeah. So do you see it as any different between the different sizes of companies? In other words, small, medium, or large, is it more important to have this diversity for smaller and medium-sized companies than large, or do you see it as well, the same across the board? I think it's the same. I, th- I think the need um, and the and the value proposition of having a diverse leadership is the same. Okay. Uh, small companies, big companies, medium-sized companies. I think that larger companies are further along in the maturity scale and get it. Ah. Small to mid-sized companies don't always get it mm. because they simply haven't really that, – that dialogue, that discussion, that conversation hasn't happened. That's one of the things I look to bring to the organizations that I work with because I have seen the value uh, that uh, having a diverse leadership can bring. And you've also done it across now with your second basic industry because you were in an, in, in the other industry before, and now you're in the healthcare industry. Absolutely. So you're seeing that it, it, it manifests across various industries. It, 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 it not is. It's industry agnostic. Agnostic. It's just, um, it is, you know, why should, if you and I think the same, then one of us isn't necessary, right? That makes sense. Makes sense. And so, Dick, we certainly don't want to leave you out of this conversation with regard to diversity and leadership. So how do you choose the leaders you interview? Uh, again, it's based upon uh, people they know. Okay. And, uh, and that's kind of interesting that 
and, and people that I know as well. And so my, my reach is rather broad. And uh, You're one of the more connected people I know. Well, we try to do that. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it's kind of interesting that the, uh, the dialogue of, uh, of diversity, you know, it, it's almost a foreign conversation for me in that having been raised in Saudi Arabia, the people who had power of life and death over us were men of color mm. and of a different religion. Um, and in the Army, you don't get to choose who is in your organization, and you don't get to choose who you work for. You get, you, you get to choose to do your very best. And over the years, uh, institutionally, uh, the Army, I think, uh, is, is probably attributed to the, the, the sociologist as probably being one of the most advanced organizations in the world when it comes to total inclusion. And it has arrived at that point uh, when I left that uh, it was not uncommon for uh, senior women, senior African Americans who would say, we have finally arrived in a meritocracy, that we're, we're evaluated based upon our merit and, uh, and our ability to contribute to the future. And so to, to have a conversation about how do you build that, I, I, don't, know how to, I don't know how to do that. And, I, and so the, consequently, I, I don't worry about it. Yeah. Now, I'm afraid because there are cases, you know, like Keith is talking about, that when, I, when I've dealt with small businesses, uh, especially high technology companies that are trying to get their start, they know who they know. Right. You know, and they, 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 they know those people from college or from, from some association, and they tend to gravitate towards each other. The question is what happens, like Keith was talking about earlier, is that what happens when they want to be something other than what they are? And then at that point in time, there has to be a very conscious uh, effort to make sure that you get the very, very best of the broadest spectrum of technological uh, specialty skills, uh, uh, backgrounds, uh, you know, where did you come from? Uh, you know, everybody from one of the, uh, the gated communities does not necessarily provide a diverse background and diverse experiences. And so you've got to, you've got to consider those things. But uh, for me, um, it just it, – it, meritocracy is what I would love to I would love to see, and in the recruiting business, we we um, it was kind of interesting that during during and after Vietnam, the uh, the number of uh, African American men who joined the army and stayed was very very high, hmm. and uh, and years later, what we found out is that we were recruiting based upon the proportions of the population in general. So and, and so we started to go back and say, well, what has happened? And what we what we've discovered was that the United States was getting to the point where it was becoming more of a meritocracy, in that people had options now. There there weren't oh you you had to go to the army because there were no options. And if you were a smart person and you wanted to get ahead, and you wanted to be a leader, you you had to go someplace else, and the army was the place to do that. Well, now it's like it's a it's a piece of the population, and and what's interesting, men and women are pretty much represented based upon their uh, their proportion to the population in business. And so, again, it becomes a case of meritocracy rules out in my mind at every opportunity. You give the person the opportunity to uh, to deliver, they deliver. Uh, keep moving them and keep challenging them with more and more things to do. Well, that that is truly an ideal that we're moving toward. If that would be the case, right? right? And meritocracy is important. So. Uh, now that we've uh, kind of set the table, we've talked a little bit about uh, what you're doing at your various companies and also with TCAL. We've talked a little bit about uh, your personal philosophies of leadership. 
we've talked a little bit about, uh, and I want to dovetail and ask you a little bit more about some of the leadership things that you're doing with Med Assets. But with regard to the fact that we are a global leader radio, we want to find out what are ways that leaders can position or prepare themselves for global assignments. Do you have any thoughts on that one, Keith? Absolutely. I think, um, number one, you got to ask. <laughs> ask them or uh, are the individuals ask the company for the assignments? Individuals ask the company for the assignments. Okay. And I have, um, uh, I have placed a number of folks over the last 20 years into global roles, global assignments, um, because they asked. Hmm. And if you're part of an an organization that has a global presence, um, you may never have thought about seeking out a global responsibility. Um, It's quite uncomfortable for many. You you may not know the language, um, you may not know the customs, you may not know the business. Um, But Getting, as we talked about before, getting outside your comfort zone and seeking out those kinds of opportunities is an enormous opportunity for growth, and you grow exponentially. And um, so I'll just use my nephew as an example. Works for a very large consulting firm, uh, one of the big four, and uh, he's got two small children. But uh, a couple of years ago, he heard about an opportunity in India, mm-hmm. and uh, although he was quite comfortable and happy here in Atlanta, living in his suburban life, and he saw this as, wow, what an opportunity, not only professionally, but personally, and so he threw his name in the hat, and lo and behold, he was selected to go do this uh, two-year stint in India. He has just returned this month. My goodness. And um, and you know what? He would never have had this opportunity if he hadn't asked. And so uh, that's the first way to prepare yourself, is to just seek out what opportunities are out there and throw your name in the hat. Let uh, someone in leadership, someone in a position of influence, know that that is something you, that you would, would entertain. And, and then I would say, you know, be a student of, of uh, global business. Whatever business you're, you're in, if, if your company does business outside the U.S., uh, learn everything you can about that. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to go out and take a Berlitz course and learn the language. That's certainly nice. But just uh, learn about the culture of uh, y- culture outside of uh, your U.S.-based business. Learn about the how the business is different than your U.S.-based different uh, your U.S.-based business, uh, and seek those opportunities out. Oh, great, Dick! Uh, of course, with your deep background from the Army. I'm certain that uh, global is something that, uh, in, in your own personal background, which we didn't delve a lot into, knowing that you grew up uh, in Saudi Arabia and uh, uh, experienced global from a very different perspective. Well, you know, I, you know, I don't have a personal philosophy on it, but I think that uh, the chairwoman of, uh, of PepsiCo in one of her interviews uh, had talked about it. She, she, what she does is she, she asks people where would you like your children to be educated? And, and that's sort of a different way of looking at it in that you're, you know, it's not necessarily what assignment do you want, but where do you want your kids to, to grow up? What kind of a background do you, do you want them to have? Uh, what are you looking forward to when you're, when you're done here? And, and those kinds of questions are, are different than aspirational questions uh, for yourself. And I think that if you can do that, and I think that's important because what, she'll, what she will do is that if you're a performer, and you want your your children to graduate from one of the uh, uh, the British uh, school systems? There, there's a there's a tenure that your kids have to be in school in certain schools, and you have to be in certain places. And and so, 
she positions those people uh, in, a, in a place where their, their family aspirations can be uh, achieved. And I think that's probably one of the best ways that I've heard uh, when it comes to that opportunity. Educationally, though, there's nothing that takes the place of just going someplace and, and just touring and, and, and getting to get a feel for what's out there. Because oftentimes we, we conduct business, and some of the interviews that I've, uh, I've listened to with the leaders at TCAL is that um, oftentimes when they're transplanted someplace else, they think exactly like they were the place they were at before. So, uh -huh. so it, it's very hard to understand how people think and even how governments deal with businesses in various uh, countries. And so it, it's the broadest perspective you can get. And I would, I would suggest that the broadest perspective you can get is to be on the street with real people for a, a couple of weeks at a time just just to get a flavor for what it's like. And I think that's, Im that's important to understand, not necessarily how they think, but sort of feel um, feel how it is on the streets uh, in that particular country. So that's true immersion. You know, we're not just studying this in classroom. I mean, we're actually yeah. there. Yeah, and I think that's, that's one of the benefits. If, if a study abroad program is done properly, mm -hmm. you, sp you spend a lot of time just hanging out and absorbing the process and, and the culture and things like that, so you have, you have some idea. I think that's probably more important uh, than a lot of things. The other part of it is that um, on, on the business side, we often confuse um, governmental policies with business practices, or with we, you know, and so uh, on a couple of occasions, I've been I've been told that you know governments are are doing the best they can for for their particular environments, etc. But businesses structure themselves so that there there is a complementary benefit between the various international uh, divisions. That somebody uh, in another country has something that we would need, and we have something that they would need, and there's a there's a need to exchange product and services. And by doing that, by making sure that the, the corporations are built so that they are complementary and, and not at the expense of somebody else, uh, you know, basically a classic win-win, mm -hmm. uh, that, that that will trump all other policies and procedures that you may, uh, may encounter internationally. So I think that great how, point. how you build your business is important. But also just being on the street and... Uh, and just getting a hang of, of what it is is probably more important. And not in an official capacity, not with an entourage, and not part of the being escorted through the, uh, you know, through the streets. Just just be a loner. Ah, very good. So, Keith, what roles would higher education play in leadership readiness for both uh, global and domestic type of experience? Um, well, I definitely think uh, that you can prepare yourself for global roles uh, while still in school. And I've got a great uh, example of a young fellow I know attending a technology university just uh, uh, down I-75, ah. downtown way. Uh, you know, he wants to, he, he wants to uh, play in the, global, in the global space, and so he has uh, signed up for a year in China. Really? Um, and while he was in school, uh, this, is, this will be his second year in, in school, but in his freshman year he took uh, man, Mandarin Chinese as, a, as one of his electives. The full year, and uh, now he can, you know, he can uh, converse in the language, and he signed up, and he's doing that. So very much like you were just saying, Dick, is um, uh, take advantage of those opportunities, and spend some time on the street. He's never been to China, but he's about to go spend some time on the street for the next year. Hmm. Very good. Very good. So now, with regard to um, to Dick and what you're doing with TCAL, um, how can our listeners and learning community be of assistance to help you and TCAL achieve the goal? 
Uh, if I'm not mistaken, you were looking at about 500 of these video memoirs. Yeah, you know, sometimes you have to set a goal, um, and you can't set a goal that is less than the, the champion in your space. And the champion in our space um, was chartered by, the, by uh, Carnegie himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, his name is Napoleon Hill. And Napoleon Hill went out and interviewed 500 wealthy people and basically came back and said, this is what people do to become wealthy and rich. And um, so we had to set the benchmark at 500 leaders that we, we have to have uh, in our archives to, to tell their stories. And so that's our, our big objective. And so 500 is a big number. Yes. And when you're saying uh, we need people who are in their encore careers, their integrity uh, is established um, and uh, they are they are people of uh, of honor. Then uh, we need to know who they are, and they need to be directed our way. And I think that's how the the listener can uh, can help us is that you know somebody. Okay. And uh, and it may not be the person who's always at the top, but it may have been like I said earlier in, in the conversation that people who are always there to make sure that those like Keith was talking about that that identify themselves and we identify as future leaders are groomed and, and positioned and, and, and sponsored, we need, to, we need to have their stories, and we need to doc, just give me the names, and we're off to the races. Yeah, well, you know, we, we touched on this a little bit, Keith, but uh, I didn't ask you specifically about uh, MedAssets. How is important is it to MedAssets to ensure that your colleagues, your employees, and your leadership are lifelong learners? Oh, that is absolutely critical and something we talk about all the time. Uh, as I mentioned before, we, we serve the healthcare industry. And we want our colleagues and our leaders, our future leaders, to be students of the healthcare industry. Okay. And um, to never stop learning, which is one of the reasons we bring uh, before them the executives from the healthcare industry so that they can be hearing it. By the way, I mentioned that executive speaker series that we do that for our leadership uh, development program. But here's the, uh, the trick. We open that up to our entire 3,000-person employee base through a webcast. So even though... He, is, uh, he or she, the leader, is speaking before our leadership development group. It's uh, being broadcast around the country. Interesting. Very so good. And it's been well-received, I would Very well-received. People really enjoy hearing from, from those leaders. Well, I'll tell you, gentlemen, that uh, it, on behalf of our learning community, it's been certainly an honor and a pleasure to have both of you uh, today to share your thoughts, your expertise, and your passion with us. So I'd love to have you back on the show sometime, perhaps in the fall, and to discuss Dick, how the video memoirs are coming along and perhaps learning about any other breakthrough initiatives you're driving over at MedAssets, Keith. Is is that a deal, gentlemen? Absolutely. Oh, and, and I've got your, um, your thumbs up on, actually, on the Internet radio, so you can't back out on me. So I know i got you coming back. Fantastic. So as, as we wrap this up, which business book has most impacted your leadership ability? So we'll start with you, Keith. So I'll, I'll give you two books. One you'll find on the leadership aisle called, uh, you know, I talked earlier about uh, intuition and that gut feel, so you won't be surprised by this one. It's called Straight from the Gut Straight by Jack Welch. Um, great book. Yeah, great book, and, and Jack, uh, uh, you know, imparts a lot of wisdom. You know, GE was very, very well known for leadership development and that sort of thing. So a lot of learnings from that book. The next book, though, um, you will definitely not find on the leadership aisle. And, uh, in fact, you'll need to go to the history aisle to find it. It's called Team of Rivals. It's about, uh, or it's written uh, by Doris Kearns Goodwin. Uh, Team of Rivals is about the presidency of Abraham Lincoln. And although it's certainly not uh, intended to be a 
leadership, a, a book on leadership tactics. Um, it is a book about his presidency and what is remarkable. If you think about uh, the importance of leadership and success as a leader, it's surrounding yourself with great people. And uh, that is what Abraham Lincoln did. He took basically all of his uh, rivals in the presidential election and made them his cabinet. That's right. Uh, he filled he filled the cabinet with people that had things that he didn't have, and so it's it's a f- fantastic, uh, fantastic book. Definitely not yes men, right? That's correct. So, Dick, what are your thoughts? Uh, two books. Maybe I have to come up with three now that uh, Keith has come <laughs> up with two. Um, but there, there are there are two books that they don't necessarily form uh, my basis for leadership, but they they're important to understand. And one is. Uh, a rather extended study that comes out in a book called The General Managers by John Cotter at, at Harvard. And um, what's important about it is that John uh, went out and interviewed oh, thousands and thousands of, of general managers, and um, he, but he, he narrows his story down to uh, about nine that he actually spends a lot of time with personally in addition to surveys and conversations, things like that. And I think it's important to learn that these are these are people out of thousands who who had traits and processes that were different but were important to other people and to success. And I thought that that's a, a good base point. The other book, which goes more to the subject of, uh, of what we do at TCAL, uh, is uh, another book by John Cotter, and it's called uh, The New Rules. It was published in 1994, and it was the result of 20 years of yearly conversations with every member of the graduating class of Harvard Business School in 1974. And he, um, he communicated with them, he um, surveyed with them, he, uh, a, lot of, a lot of different things. And at the end of the 20 years, uh, the book basically in the study said that um, these men and women had at least three major confrontations in their careers before they settle down to what they ultimately do and, and enjoy. And he, he points out that, you know, oftentimes there's a conflict with an individual, there's a cultural conflict, or those things that you thought you wanted to do when you got there that really wasn't, you know, you, you choose a profession and say, that really isn't isn't me or that, that industry isn't me, and you go on and do something else. And, and of course, the uh, the humorous part of that is, is that uh, for a, a Harvard uh, business graduate, once they decide that they don't want to be someplace and they want to go someplace else, it's like you know sliding glass doors are, are just open for them uh, as they as they pass through life. For the rest of us, we don't know where the doors are, <laughs> uh, and and when, and when we do find them, we find out that they're they're metal reinforced with you know, t- you know three or four different locks to them. And so, but but we all go through that same process, and uh, so I think that it's important to understand that. Even for what we consider to be the best and brightest of us, uh, the challenges of, of individual conflict, organizational conflict, um, aspirational conflicts, they all exist. And there's, there is a place for every one of us somewhere in the future that we're going to be just fine with and we're going to love it. Well, I love your bullish intent. Certainly, uh, we can count on you, Dick, to make sure that everybody has a place. And, uh, and it's important from a confidence standpoint. So, gentlemen, again, thank you. I, I really do appreciate you for coming uh, and spending a little time with us. So as we begin to fold down today's edition, could uh, each of you tell us how our learning community can contact you either by email address or by phone? Absolutely. My email address is uh, pretty easy, khicks at medassets.com. Okay, great. And it's rteters, T-E-T-E-R-S, at okay. kennesaw.edu. 
So again, thank you for sharing your time and expertise with us on Global Leader Radio. So for those listening on the Internet, please join us on the web at www.globalleaderradio.com for previous interviews and tune in every Monday at 1 p.m. for Global Leader Radio. So have a great week. Thank you. Global Leader Radio is brought to you by the Executive MBA Program at Kennesaw State University. Take charge of your personal development and professional career today by learning more at ksuemba.com. And join us next week as we discuss ideas that matter with people who care.